Yeah. Okay. Clean and chicken now is good priority. So. Okay, well, we're continuing in Nehemiah chapter 5. Nehemiah chapter 5, this is where Nehemiah is dealing with the issue of um, people who were poor needing loans and mortgages, and the wealthy Jews were abusing that uh, and abusing the, the poor. Um, let's open with a, a word of prayer. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the things that we can learn from it, the things about how we are to treat others and to have our attitude toward um, those who uh, need help from us and vice versa when we need help to go to others, Lord. And, and we thank you for the provisions you've made in your word uh, for your people. And we, we pray that as we study, we can, we can see your um, righteous and fair and just provisions uh, but at the same time, man's depravity at abusing those. So we pray you'll, you'll open our hearts to understand and apply your word, and we pray you'll bless our time together now in Christ's name. Amen. So before we get into Nehemiah, I want to read from Second Kings chapter 4. I can just read this. This is Elisha the prophet, and there's a story of the widow's oil. If you remember, she had the pot of oil and it just kept coming and coming and coming. Let me read verse 1. It says, Now a certain woman of the wives of the sons of the prophets cried out to Elisha, Your servant, my husband, is dead and you know that your servant feared the Lord. And the creditor has come to take my two children to be his slaves. So that's kind of what we've been talking about in Nehemiah 5. The creditors come to take their children to be slaves, to pay off the debt. And as a result of all this oil, uh, um, verse 7, uh, the oil stopped, and then she came and told the man of God, and he said, go sell the oil and pay your debt, and you and your sons can live on the rest. So God provided for their needs in that case. But we can see that the creditors are coming, they're going to take my sons to be his slaves. Okay. So did they have a lot of oil or a high price for what they have? Pardon? Did they have a lot of oil or did they have a high price for the oil they have? They got, it says they got every container they could find and filled them all. <laughs> but it was sufficient. <laughs> always think of Corey Tindy because she talked about her little bottle of um, liquid vitamins never running out. Oh. Oh, whether, wow. you know, whether those vitamins were critical or not, it was, a, it, it was an encouragement that God was watching over them. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. Her, her bottle, she had this little bottle of vitamins when she was sent to the camp, wow. and it just kept going. It never ran out. Okay, well, let's get back to Nehemiah chapter 5. Uh, to get our context, we'll, we'll start reading at verse 9 and read through the end of the chapter. Verse 9. So I said, the thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? I and my brothers and my men are also lending the people money and grain, but that is, but let us stop charging interest. Please, give back to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive groves, and their houses. Also the hundredth part of the money and of the grain, the new wine and the oil that you are exacting from them. 
Christ. And they said, we will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priests and made them swear to do as they had promised. I also stripped the fold of my garment and said, so may God shake out every man from his house and from his lady who does not keep this promise. So many be, he, so may he be shaken out and emptied. And the assembly said, Amen, and praise the Lord, and the people did as they promised. Verse 14, please. Moreover, from the day that it was appointed to be the governor in the land of Judah, on the 20th year and the 32nd year of King Artaxerxes, two twelve years, neither I nor my kinsmen have eaten the governor's food at all. But the earlier governors, those preceding me, placed a heavy burden on the people and took 40 shekels of silver, silver from them in addition to food and wine. Their assistants also lorded it over the people. And I also applied myself to the work on this wall. We did not buy any land, and all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Each day, one ox, six choice sheep, and some poultry were prepared for me, and every, and every ten days an abundant supply of wine of all kinds. In spite of all this, I never be, be hampered demanded the food allotment of the governor because the demands were heavy on these people. Remember me, O oh my God, for good, according to all that I have done for this people. Okay. So last week uh, we, were, we looked at verses 9 and 10. Um, this is where Nehemiah very bluntly told the, the wealthy class that what you're doing is not good. Period. <laughs> it's not good. Um, <coughs> and uh, he also acknowledged that he and his uh, associates were also lending and food and money as necessary. But they were doing it according to the law. They were doing it correctly. Whereas the wealthy were taking advantage of the poor and uh, basically trapping them into poverty. Uh, we spent quite a bit of time uh, last week Again, going over the different provisions that God made for the poor. You know, it starts out with just a simple borrowing some money or borrowing something and, and possibly having uh, collateral or surety for it. You know, that's kind of the first step where someone can pay it back later. Uh, the second thing is if, you know, if they were even more impoverished and they had land, then they would sell the land in order to get the money that they needed. And then finally, if they were um, basically had no land, no collateral, nothing, uh, they would sell either family members or themselves into slavery. And that's what we saw, you know, looking at that uh, in Second Kings 4, the widow, she had nothing um, at all except two sons, and they would have been sold into, as slaves. But in all those... Prov um, different stages, God made provision that the person could pay off the loan um, or a kinsman could come and pay it off. There was uh, you know, a, <coughs> excuse me, a, a limit uh, if, if you had to sell yourself into slavery. After six years, you were released and uh, given enough supplies and money to, to 
restart your life. Um, there was a year of jubilee. Every 50 years, all land would revert back to the original owners. So it was like a giant do-over. Um, so God did provide for people, you know, even when they were in poverty and in need. But there was always a way out. They weren't trapped into it forever. Where was Nehemiah getting the grain from? I don't know. Did he with him when he came? I don't think so. No, I think I think there was, you know, they they could import grain. It does talk about being expensive, though. I think, you know, when 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 supplies are low, the price goes up. It's interesting that timeline on slavery because Joe's um, grandfather, Gene's father, was actually a bond slave. Mm-hmm. Um, after World War II, his the mother was widowed, and she had three sons, and the youngest was handicapped, and so she. Two older boys in bond slavery yeah. in Canada. World War One. World War One. Right. And London was not a good place. Yeah. So that was that was one way of yeah. taking care of, of those who were in need, and as long as uh, you know it wasn't being abused by the wealthy, it, it worked okay. You know? uh, but in this case. They were abusing it, and uh, Nehemiah called them on the carpet. And told, they were <laughs> yeah, they were wealthy for the, all the wrong reasons. Um, but we did see that Nehemiah also was lending money, but he was doing it according to the law. He was not trying to take advantage of them. But he says in the end of verse 10, uh, let us leave off this usury. <coughs> so, 11 is where he he tells them what it is that he's going to tell them to do uh, to solve this issue. He says, please give back to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive groves, and their houses. Also the hundredth part of the money and of the grain, the new wine, and the oil that you are exacting from them. So first he says, give back the property. Fields, vineyards, olive groves, houses. He was, in effect, declaring a year of jubilee. This is what would happen in the year of jubilee. Um, now, they had, it had been almost 100 years since the Jews had come back to Judah and to the land. Do you think they had had a year of jubilee in that time? Probably not. You know, it's probably one of those things that they just ignored and skipped over. Um, so it was due. <laughs> I don't think uh, Nehemiah was out of line in any way uh, for announcing this. But basically, gives the people their land back. They can work their land. They can pay off their debts now. They can now make the money they need to pay off their debts. So that's the first half of the verse. And then the latter half of the verse uh, refers to the actual interest that they had paid on these loans. Um, and so you've got what's called here the hundredth part of the money and so there's a little bit of discussion in the commentaries about what this refers to Uh, some of the commentaries say this a hundredth part is one percent and so they said the loan rate was one percent per month you know if that's compounded it's just under 13 percent per year which is not bad I don't know if you've looked at your 
credit card um, rates is about double that. Um, so this is not a bad rate, uh, if that's what it means. Um, the other commentaries say, well, when it just says hundredth part, it means pay back the percentage, whatever it happened to be. So it might be that the interest rate was higher, but when he said the hundredth part, they're just saying pay back whatever the interest rate happened to be. Um, now, we've mentioned before um, Elephantine. It was a city in southern uh, Egypt, way up the Nile. I think it was on an island, but they had a Jewish uh, colony there, and they found lots of records. So, you know, we, we mention it because they got archaeological records from there that talk about this period of time. And it says those records show interest rates of 60 to 75 percent. That's pretty high. Um, the commentaries also said that one of someone who was doing research through a lot of uh, financial records and his the lowest interest rate that he found was about 20 percent. So you're looking at 20 to 75 percent interest rates. Uh, that 20 percent was basically across the whole kingdom, not just within Judah. So those are the kinds of interest rates. So this interest was paid in cash, in grain, wine, in oil. This was prohibited under the law. They were not allowed to charge interest to fellow Jews. <clears throat> and so Nehemiah says, this must be given back. It was obtained illegally. You have to give it back. <coughs> And again, it's a little bit unclear as, as to what all was to be returned. It was at least the interest rate. Some of the commentaries thought the whole loan itself was to be forgiven. You know, it wasn't just a year of jubilee that were the property returned, but all the loan was forgiven and all the interest uh, wiped out. Um, so that would have been a complete reset. But either way, uh, they were to give back a lot of what they had obtained improperly and... Uh, and so that's the judgment that Nehemiah rendered here in this, this trial. So going on to verse 12, we'll see, well, how did the creditors respond to this? So then they said, we will give it back and we'll require nothing from them. We will do exactly as you say. So I called the priests and took an oath from them that they would do according to this promise. So they agree uh, to give back the land of the, <clears throat> the interest that they had charged, um, and they would require nothing more. You know, maybe they required the repayment of the original loan, and that was it. So this um, relieved a lot of the financial burden on the poorer Jews. You know, they may have been completely forgiven of their loans. You know, that's kind of we're not clear here. <clears throat> but they agreed to do exactly what Nehemiah tells them to do. They don't try to negotiate a settlement because Nehemiah's got them over a barrel. I mean, it's pretty obvious that this is what the law says. This is what they did. It violated the law. They're guilty. You know, this trial is held in a great assembly before all the people, so everybody knows exactly what the situation is. They really don't have a choice. And they say, okay, we will agree to do exactly what you say. Now, this doesn't mean they were happy with it. You know, we're not told that they were displaced, but I, I have a feeling that uh, 
they may have been a little bit disgruntled about losing this financial um, settlement that, that uh, Nehemiah imposed on them. But the fact is, he was absolutely correct in how he applied God's law. And they couldn't argue with that. So we don't know whether it was given back grudgingly or gladly or what, but uh, they agreed to the agreed to what he said. So this, I want to look at Luke chapter 19. We'll see a little, possibly a different reaction. Luke chapter 19, and would someone like to read verse 8 for us? Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I will give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. Okay. <laughs> Jesus replies, he says, Today salvation has come to this house, because he too is the son of Abraham. For Zacchaeus... You can see the enthusiastic desire to not just to give back what was owed, but far more than that. That was a sign of his repentance, a sign of his uh, new life, of his desire to please God as much as he could at that time. So we don't see any people here in the book of Nehemiah proclaiming, it. okay, I, I, I repent, I want to do... You know, do what's right and go beyond that to please God. You know, they do what is required, at least. So, they make this promise, and then to seal this, Nehemiah made them take an oath. So he had the priests come, and they took an oath before the priests, and the priests represent God. So they're taking an oath before God that they will do according to their promise. Um, there's a another area that I'm not really sure about here as we as we've gone through this um, abuse of the of the poor is whether the priests themselves were involved in this because priests generally were leaders they had power they tended to uh, abuse that power at times and they weren't particularly uh, obedient to the law let's go back to Ezra chapter 10. Someone like to read verse 18. Ezra 10 and verse 18. Now there were found some of the sons of the priests who had married foreign women. Messiah, Mes- yeah. Eliezer, Jerob, and Gedaliah. Some okay. of the sons of Yeshua. The son of Joseph. Actually. That's enough. <laughs> we don't need more names. <laughs> okay, but sons of the priests had married foreign wives. This was a violation of the law. So, you know, this is the same group of people that we have Nehemiah dealing with here, the priests. Um, they had violated the law earlier. Uh, were they in violation here? We don't know. So the priests may or may not have been among the guilty parties. But they did represent God, so they administered the oath here. <coughs> I want to look at a, excuse me, another example. Let's look at Jeremiah chapter 34. 34? 34, Jeremiah. We've looked at this chapter before because it deals with Hebrew slaves. Okay, Jeremiah chapter 34. Would someone like to read verses 18 and 19 for us? 
of the covenant that they made before me, I will make them like the cap that they cut in two and cast between its parts, the officials of Judah, the officials of Jerusalem, the eunuchs, the priests, and all the people of the land who cast between the parts of the cap. Okay, so this is in Jerusalem before the uh, Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the city. And we see the abuse of, the context is the abuse of uh, slavery of fellow Jews. But we see the priests listed here as being some of those who broke the covenant. Um, but again, in this same chapter, uh, Jeremiah 34, would someone like to read verses 10 and 11 for us? And they obeyed all the officials and all the people who had entered into the covenant that everyone would set free his slave, male or female, so that they would not be enslaved again. They obeyed and set them free. Verse 11, please. But afterward, they turned around and took back the male and female slaves that had set free and brought them into subjection as slaves. Okay, so this is their track record. <laughs> oh, yes, we will do this. We will make a covenant. And then afterwards they turned around and disobeyed it. And that's why in the second, or the, the first passage we read, God is saying, you know, they, they, they cut a calf in half, they walk between them, it's saying, you know, if I break this covenant, you know, make me, cut me in half like this calf. And God is saying, I'm going to do that. <laughs> you made this covenant, you broke it, that's what's going to happen to you. And that's, again, one of the, one of the many reasons why Jerusalem was destroyed and so many of them died. So, they've got a history of breaking covenants. So going back to Nehemiah chapter 5, okay, we, they've made a promise, they took an oath before God, and then Nehemiah adds another layer of uh, surety to this, uh, to make sure that they, they fulfill this in verse 13. Is I also shook out the front of my garment and said, May God shake out every man from his house and from his possessions who does not fulfill this promise. Even thus may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen. And they praised the Lord. And the people did according to this promise. <coughs> so Nehemiah, you know, he, he shakes his garment out like, you know, like you're brushing crumbs off, I guess. Um, and this portrays, you know, God shaking out a man from all his possessions. You know, it's like, okay, I'm going to just get rid of all my, you know, God's going to get rid of all his possessions. Um, and, and this is, in effect, uh, a curse. So Nehemiah puts a curse on them as well to help ensure that they will fulfill what they said they would do. Um, so the commentaries said that uh, you know they didn't have pockets, but they had folds in their robes, and they put they would keep stuff in the robes in these folds, and that's the idea here is you pull everything out straight and everything falls out of your folds. Um, you know I it looks rather shaky to me to you know fold a shirt over and put put your wallet in there. I, <laughs> I don't think I'd, I I think I'm sure I'd lose it. But here's the, you know, the shaking out of your robes to get rid of everything that you've got stored there. Let's look at Acts chapter 18. We've got a New Testament example of something very similar. 
Acts chapter 18. Would someone like to read verses 5 and 6 for us? But when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul began devoting himself completely to the word, solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. But when they resisted and blasphemed, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be in your own heads. I am clean. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Okay, we see the shaking out of the garments. That's the same thing. So that was a... Probably the dusting of the feet. Yeah, you know, shaking. Right, shaking that's... Feet. Yeah, that's similar too. You, Jesus told the disciples, if, if you're not welcomed in the city, shake the dust off your sandals and leave them behind. Right, so... So they had these uh, uh, things that they would do to, to emphasize the, uh, the promise with, a, with this curse to make sure that they would fulfill what they promised to do. <coughs> and the verse tells us that the congregation, the assembly now, who is watching all this, answer with a, uh, they said amen, and I'm sure that was enthusiastic because these were the people who had been oppressed. Um, they were probably pretty excited about that. It goes on to say they praised the Lord. So they have their relief. You know, they had cried out to God, um, and God sent them relief, and we have, I mean, you read the history of the Jews, and it's over and over again. They are in trouble, and they cry out to God, and God sends them a, a judge or a leader or food or something. He sends them what they need and gives them relief. So finally it tells us at the end of the verse that they, the people did according to the promise. So again, we, you know, they'd admitted their guilt. They accepted the settlement that Nehemiah pronounced. They took, uh, and they promised to do it. They took the oath before God from the priests, and then Nehemiah pronounced a curse on them if they did fail to comply. Um, we do not see this problem popping up again in the rest of the book of Nehemiah. It says they kept the promise, so as far as we know, they actually did this time. They no longer abused uh, uh, the, the loan-creditor uh, relationship. <coughs> now, at this point, we've got kind of a, a change in uh, subject matter, a change in tone, because from verse 14 through the end of the chapter... Um, what we've got is it, it looks like Nehemiah is giving an account of his practices as governor. Um, and this appears to be a good, honest, straightforward report to God about how he fulfilled his responsibilities. So we can look at the end of verse 19. He says, Remember me, O my God, for good, according to all that I have done for this people. So he's addressing this to God. Basically, he's saying, "This is how I, this is how I uh, fulfilled my duties as governor." So, in verse fourteen, he he begins by giving us more details about, you know, his time there and being governor. He says, "Moreover, from the day that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the twentieth year to the thirty-second year of King Artaxerxes, 
For 12 years, neither I nor my kinsmen have eaten the governor's food allowance. So this is really the first place that we're told that he actually had been appointed governor uh, by Artaxerxes. So he's appointed governor, and this is done in Artaxerxes' 20th year. So is there a... And he serves for 12 years. So do we have... um, Know, a conflict here with chapter 2. So let's go back to chapter 2. <coughs> verse 1. Um, we came about in the month Nisan. <coughs> Excuse me. In the 20th year of King Artaxerxes. So I, um, wine was before him. I took the wine and gave it to the king. So he was the... Um, the cupbearer to the king. And this is the 20th year of Artaxerxes. Um, at this point, he, he goes to the king and asks that he can be dismissed to go to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls. And Verse 6 says, Then the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, How long will be your journey, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me, and I gave him a definite time. When we looked at this, we realized it probably didn't say, I'm going to be gone for 12 years. It was probably a shorter period of time. Um, So maybe several months. And we're not told that he was appointed governor here. Let's look at chapter 6 and verse 15. Someone like to read that for us. Fifty-two days, that's a pretty fast construction job. So less than two months. And the notes say Elu, Elu, however you pronounce it, was the August-September time period. So the first month of their year was in March, April, so now it's August-September. So we're halfway through Artaxerxes' 20th year. And... Probably the best solution to this issue is that Nehemiah got the walls finished and then he went back to Susa to report back to King Artaxerxes. Now, he still had things in Jerusalem that he had not accomplished. Um, when he, you know, he had uh, a letter from the king telling him that he could have timber and part of the timber was to use to build a fortress next to the temple. It was also to build a governor's house. I don't think he'd done those things. He got the wall rebuilt. So he still had construction work back in Jerusalem. I think he asked to go back to Jerusalem. And I think the king probably said, okay, you're going to go back, but you're going to go back, and I'm going to, I'm going to appoint you as governor. So I'm sending you back as governor. You can finish the work you got started and then continue on. And it, as it turns out, it says it's a 12-year term. Um, looking at our verse again, he was there to the 32nd year of King Artaxerxes. So he had a 12-year term. Um, that may have been, uh, he may have been appointed for 12 years. You know, when we've talked about calendars and numbers, uh, 
Babylon and Persia liked numbers like 6 and 12 and 60. You know, we might appoint someone for a 10-year term because we have decimal systems. Well, they didn't. They had a, everything they do was kind of base 12. So it may have been, okay, your term of governor is going to be 12 years. You know, we have senators serve for six, so it might have been something similar. Yeah. Term limits is two terms, you know, yeah. kind of be a max of 12. So be 12 years, right. So that's, a, some of this is speculation, but it kind of fits in with some of the so other things we see. His appointment sense. would have been before Artaxerxes' 21st year, it would have been towards right. the end of his so it was toward the end of Artaxerxes' 20th year. So at the beginning of Artaxerxes' 20th year, he sent Nehemiah back to rebuild the wall. Toward the end of that year, he appointed Nehemiah governor and sent him back again. And again, that's not clearly stated in Scripture, but that kind of seems to be what a lot of the commentaries say fits, is the scenario that best fits the different passages that we're looking at. <clears throat> So he went, um, so that's a total of 12 years. Let's look at one other verse in chapter 13, Nehemiah 13. So I'd like to read verse 6 for us, Nehemiah 13, 6. Okay, and it says, and I came to Jerusalem. So after 12 years, he went back to Susa. His term, 12-year term was over. He went back to Susa. So the, he, he describes things that were going on in Jerusalem while he was not there. And apparently he didn't like what was happening in Jerusalem, and we'll see that when we get to these chapters. And so he asked the king, send me back to Jerusalem again. So he'll return to Jerusalem later at the end of the book. So, Nehemiah now describes his unselfish rule during these 12 years. And the first thing we see here is at the end of verse 14, neither I nor my kinsmen have eaten the governor's food allowance. So, it was part of, I guess, normal procedure for the people to bring food to the governor's uh, mansion that he would not have to buy food. They would provide the food for him. It would come from the province as a, as a food tax, I guess. So as a governor, he had the right to be supported uh, by taxes, including food. Um, let's turn back to 1 Kings chapter 4. We will see... Not a governor, but King Solomon. And I don't know if you remember, when the people went to Samuel and asked for a king, Samuel basically said, are you really sure you want a king? He's going to take your land. He's going to take your food. He's going to take your children. He's going to take this and take that. And they, oh, yeah, we need a king. Um, so First Kings chapter 4, would someone like to read verses 21 through 23?
Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms, from the river to the land of the Philistines, and to the border of Egypt. They bought tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life. Solomon's provision for one day was 30 cores of fine flour and 60 cores of meal, 10 fat oxen, 20 pasture-fed oxen, 100 sheep besides deer, gazelles, roebucks, and fattened fowl. For he had dominion over everything west of the river from Kish... That's, that's far enough. <laughs> so his daily provisions... Um, I converted it to bushels, 190 bushels of fine flour. I'm not really sure what a bushel is, but I think it's a <coughs> pretty good, good size. Like 10 gallons or something, a couple five-gallon buckets, I, I'm guessing. 190 bushels of fine flour, 380 bushels of meal, 10 fat oxen. So these are they've been grain-fed. They've been fattened up. 20 grass-fed oxen. Um, 100 sheep, in addition to that, deer, gazelles, roebucks, fattened fowl. So they had poultry too. Every day? Every day. So Nehemiah did not require near that much. And when we get down to verse 18, it actually lists what his daily usage of food was. So... um, Let's look at some passages in the New Testament. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. This is where Paul says, this is what an apostle um, can ask for. Basically, what what was his daily allowance? Or what was, uh, um, like Nehemiah, could be supported in a certain way. How do you support an apostle? So this is a longer passage, 1 Corinthians 9. So let's read around. We'll go from 4 to 15. From 4 to 15. Where do you we want to have the right to eat and drink? Do we have the right to take a believing wife along with us, as do the other apostles and the Lord's brothers, and Cephas? Or do only Barnabas and I have a right to refrain from working? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating of any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? I always like to quote that to effort. <laughs> Don't muzzle the ox. <laughs> uh, going on to verse 10. Or is he speaking altogether for our sake? Yes, for our sake it was written, because the plowman ought to plow in hope, and the thresher to thresh in hope of sharing the crops. Yes. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others have this right of support from you, shouldn't we have it all the more? Oh, sorry that. But we did not see that, did not use this right. On the contrary, on the contrary, we have put up anything rather than rather than hinder. We have we have, we have put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who perform sacred services? eat the food of the temple, 
and those who attend regularly to the altar have their share from the altar. In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. And verse 15 too, please. Oh. I have made no use of any of these things, for nor am I writing these things to secure any provision. For I would rather do, rather die than have anyone beside me as a ground for boasting. Okay. So, you know, there's a... Uh, a standard from God's word that those who work at something should be provided from their work. You know, and the priests who ministered in the temple, they did not have to go out and work. Everybody, you know, that's where the tithes went. The tithes went to support the Levites, to support the priests. The people were to support them because they were, uh, the priests represented them before God. Um, you know, he talks about, if, you know, even the ox is working you know, dragging the sledge over the grain. He has a right to eat the grain. <laughs> you know, um, and so we so we see that as a standard throughout God's word. And, and Paul is saying, you know, you actually have an obligation to support me, but I'm not going to use it. I choose not to use that because it may get in the way of the gospel. Um, just real quickly, yeah, you may. Yeah, you know, all those preachers want is money. Have you ever heard that? They all, they, all they want is money, yes. Um, in Second Thessalonians chapter 3, uh, verses 7 through 10, it says, For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example, because we did not act in an undisciplined manner among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with labor and hardship we kept working night and day so that we might not be a burden to any of you. Not because we do not have the right to this, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you, that you might follow our example. For even when we were with you, we used to give you this order. If anyone will not work, neither let him eat. So again, he's not using his right to be supported, um, but it's not just to avoid um, the interference with the gospel, but also as an example. He says, if you don't work, you don't eat. And so he's using himself as an example. I'm going to work and, that, and supply my own food. So he had a couple reasons there for it. Okay. And we run over, so we need to quit. <laughs> okay. Um, Joe, you want to close and pray for us? Dear Lord, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the way it speaks to us, our, speaks to our hearts. Thank you, it's unchanging. Thank you, it's there um, yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Lord, do you think the instructions we have in that word, we pray that we will be attentive to what you have for us that we will obey the um, commands that you have for us in it. And we thank you for it. Pray for this next hour to come. And we thank you for the opportunity to come and, and worship and to be at the fellowship of the believers. And we just thank you for that. And pray for the service. And pray for Robert, Robert as he brings his next service. And we just thank you for that. We appreciate it. Amen. Amen. Amen.